So for uh, some of you who were not here last week, last week we were in 1 Peter 3 and we, um, or I did my best to try to articulate what I think is going on here in this text, this somewhat challenging text, um, to say the least. Um, we, uh, we very strongly believe that the Bible is clear. We very strongly believe that the Lord wants us to understand it. And... Um, but I will say that as you come to these couple of verses here at the end of First Peter, I feel like it does take some humility. Um, there are some questions that I think are left unanswered at some level. Um, but uh, I do think that I have the general sense of it. But, um, and I think as we looked at it last week together, we can see that it's a pretty big idea here. And why don't I read it, and then I'll do some review and explain a little bit more about what I mean. And then we'll get into uh, verse 20 and uh, maybe 21 and 22. We'll see how it goes. So let's read. We'll start in verse 18. 1 Peter 3:18. So Peter here exhorting the believers that they are blessed if they suffer for doing what is right, he says, like Jesus. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who once were disobedient, When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, or according to a true likeness, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for music and thank you so much for the writers of that previous song we just sang, just reminding us of how holy you are, impeccably Holy Lord, sinless through and through, no darkness in you at all. You are unique in a class all by yourself as it regards sin. Lord, you are righteous. And Lord, we are not. And Lord, your holiness does not just mean that you are utterly separate from sinners. That is true. But Lord, you're also separate in how you deal with sinners. Lord, you extend grace to them. And Lord, we all in here who know you know we need it desperately. Um, our failings are just sound like an underestimation. Um, Lord, we are wicked through and through. Um, we are weak through and through. Lord, it begins in the heart. We're going to see that this morning. And Lord, we are so thankful for your patience. We're so thankful for your love, your love that looks at a wicked world, a world that, in a real sense, Lord, you regret that you made. And Lord, you, instead of consigning it to a just condemnation you decide to save and we just praise you for jesus christ your own dear son who suffers for sins once for all 
the just for the unjust, that we might be brought back to you. Thank you for this. Lord, these verses we have before us, um, certainly they're tied to that great work of the cross, but they also hearken back into history where you did some pretty cataclysmic things in regards to uh, the response to sin. Lord, help us to just take to heart what you'd like us to. And Lord, as we think through things like baptism and, and, and just what it is, help us to take to heart what, what's really going on there. And, and Lord, as we contemplate the fact that you reign from heaven, help us to take that to heart as well. Lord, all of these things, just weave them together in our minds that we can go from here just more instructed, built up, and strong in who we are in you. And Lord Jesus, what you have done in defeating sin and Satan and death. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so follow with me here. If you were here last week, you remember we, we touched on the end of verse 18 where it says, putting a sort of a fine point on Christ's suffering, it says that he was put to death in the flesh. So Jesus was put to death, that is, by the hands of godless men, Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, was put to death in the flesh, that is, in the realm of mortality. At one time, Jesus could die. Jesus could potentially get sick. It doesn't say he did, but I assume he could. He could grow tired, weary, these kinds of things. He was in the flesh. And so in that state of affairs, he was put to death. But we know that death could not hold him. And so he, he was raised from the dead and now made alive in the Spirit. Certainly that implies that the Spirit is the one who, who, who sort of brought Jesus up from the dead. But it also means that I think that he was that he was made alive in the realm of the Spirit, that is, in the realm of immortality. So he was put to death in the realm of mortality, raised in the Spirit in this realm of, in this state of affairs of immortality. And it's in this state of immortality, in the Spirit, that he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. And I used to say, or I, I said last week, that I used to believe that this passage taught that the Spirit's here were human beings that were once preached to through Noah as the spirit of Christ within Noah was pro- proclaiming to them. I don't hold that anymore because I don't think the chronology of the text will allow for that. Because I think whatever proclamation is going on here is going on by Jesus in the state of his post-resurrection reality. And so that's what I think we find there in verse 19, that in this post-resurrection state, Jesus goes and makes proclamation to the spirits in prison. And so who are these spirits in prison? Well, we looked a little bit last week, and we, we recognize that spirits, without, without, without any uh, exception except for one, always refer to unclean spirits um, in the New Testament. Places in the Gospels and also in the book of Acts highlight this. We also looked at um, we also looked in the book of the Revelation as well and noticed some passages there that were pretty, pretty interesting where Satan is talked about being loosed from prison after he was bound for a thousand years. And then in, in, and then in the Revelation it also says that Babylon um, housed all the unclean spirits and demonic spirits that he says were in prison, which is interesting. So we talked a little bit about that and we, we wanted to, I wanted to say there that because these spirits in prison 
these spirits are in prison doesn't mean that, that they are inactive or do not influence us in some way. It just means that they are not allowed to return to their original abode, that they are in prison, and they are held there until the great day of judgment. And so what we're talking about here, then, is a victory of Jesus Christ over this realm. This is the proclamation Christ makes to the spirits in prison. What did he say to them? I'm not really sure, because the text doesn't tell us, but whatever, we want, whatever, whatever he said was something to the effect of, you lose. <laughs> something to the effect of, it is finished. Right? Something like that, that Jesus declares to the demonic realm. And so this passage is highlighting the fact that the Lord Jesus has victory over sin and that this victory over sin also brings with it a victory over Satan. This is the, this is the, and, and the demonic realm. This is the promise of Genesis 3.15. You can see this teased out in Paul in Colossians chapter 2. Also in Ephesians chapter 4. Um, these things can be seen as well. And we're going to look a little bit more now at the, the, the spirits in prison. And, and what we're going to look at, I think, emphasizes even more that these spirits in prison are, are uh, fallen angels, if you want to call them that. Because in verse 20, he says that they were once disobedient. Once disobedient, verse 20, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So what you have here is is a, a statement here about the past. In particular, it has to do with the days of Noah. He says here that these spirits were once disobedient in the days of Noah. And this is what the text says, I think, is, is what we're referring to in 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude 6. Um, let me read that again just, just real quick for you. 2 Peter 2. <coughs> Verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but committed them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, so on and so forth. And then in Jude 6, you can also hear Jude referring back to this same time. Verse 6, and angels who did not keep their own domain... But abandon their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh or exhibited as an example undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. I think Jude here is referring back to Noah's day. I think also in 2 Peter, of course, he's referring to that. He flat out says it. And as we look back into Genesis 6, we can also see the backstory here to the flood. So you can, you can listen on. I'm going to read here Genesis chapter 6, the first few verses there. And it introduces, it gives us some context as we consider the great flood that God is going to bring upon the human race. God gives the sort of context here before that's teased out for us. And it says in Genesis chapter 6, Now it came about when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and that they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. 
Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. So what you have here is the sons of God, who in, in, in my opinion are clearly angels in the Old Testament. You can see the book of Job for this and Daniel. Uh, these angels took human wives for themselves. And it's from this situation, it's from this situation that we find later in Genesis 6 in some way, shape, or form, the wickedness of man is influenced or propelled in some way. Okay? Again, not a lot told us, but what we do find is that the, that the sons of God left their proper abode, as Jude tells us, and go after strange flesh. And this was disobedience, this was wicked, and this is why God consigned them to eternal bonds, or to prison, as it were. And as this transpires, we also know that mankind alongside of them too are, are increasing in wickedness and violence and immorality become more and more pervasive. And that's the context in which we, we find this, this, this passage here about Noah and the flood. I'm not going to get into the Nephilim and all that. But what we do want to say is that the passage in Genesis 6 sets us up for this state of affairs that is just truly wicked through and through. There are fallen angels coming in, committing immorality with wives, and there are, there are violence and immoralities that grow and grow. So they were disobedient, these, these angels, these sons of God. They were disobedient. And it says they were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. Now just a few observations about this passage here in 1 Peter 3. When, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. It's important to notice that Noah, as well as, uh, is treated by Peter as well as Jesus as a real historical person. We're not, in the, we're not in the midst of a, a sort of legend and campfire stories. It says that it's in the days of Noah, this era in which Noah lived, one that the readers here would be very acquainted with. But, but Noah's a real person, and the construction of the ark is a real historical event. I don't know if some of you have seen Is Genesis History. How many of you guys have seen that documentary, Is Genesis History? Okay, maybe only like 20%. If you haven't seen it, you need to see it. It basically, it's a documentary. It's, it's one of the most well done that I've seen. It's called Is Genesis History? And I want to say it's probably two hours long or something like that. Well worth your time. And basically it goes through and shows how Genesis 1 through 11 is indeed history. It's not just a bunch of poetry and a bunch of allegory. It's actually history and it goes through it. Now, it doesn't treat the Bible as a, as a, as a science book. But it does treat it as history. That's important. You know, people always say, oh, the flood, you know, well, the Bible's not intended to be a science book. How can you prove this? Or how can you prove the, you know, the, uh, I don't know, young earth, old earth stuff, or all these other kinds of things. After all, the Bible isn't a science book, and Genesis isn't a science book. And I would say, well, I agree with you. Genesis is not a science book, but it is a history book. And so that's what God wants to give us. He wants to give us real historical record of what transpired in these early days of creation. 
And uh, so Genesis history is, is Genesis history is a great documentary that goes into these things in great detail. But this is real. The patience of God kept waiting at a certain time in history. The scriptures record this back in Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved at his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. It's quite a statement, isn't it? It's quite a statement. It's worth reading one more time. In this context where you've got the, the fallen demonic realm copulating with the sons of the daughters of men and the wickedness of man is growing and growing and growing as the population increases in the earth so also the wickedness is increasing. You have God's statement that as he looks down he sees the wickedness of man was great on the earth that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved at his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. So what do we make of this particular text? Just wanted to read that to get the sense of what's going on in Noah's day. One of the things you realize is that the wickedness of man is shocking. It is absolutely shocking. What do I mean by that? Well, the Lord saw that the wicked, he, he saw the wickedness of man, and, and you, can, you, you have to feel the great shock of this verse as you sort of consider the backstory of the original creation. God creates man and woman upright in his image and his likeness. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, they walk with God in the cool of the day. They walk with him in fellowship and in obedience. They have everything. The world is their oyster. And they fall prey to deception, and they sin, and God comes down and brings a curse upon our first human parents and consequently the rest of the human race. And as sin enters into the world, it becomes all-consuming. It's not something that stops with Adam and Eve. It is something that becomes all-consuming. And so just a couple chapters later, by the time you get to Genesis 6, you're faced with a situation in which it is absolutely everywhere, every corner of the earth, there's not a good part of town and a bad part of town. It's all bad. Everywhere. All the time. And it's shocking. Because God is the one who created this world. <laughs> God is the one who created men and women with immense privilege and responsibility and really royalty in a sense, right? They had authority by virtue of being his managers of this world and they squandered it for some fruit. And so by the time you get to Genesis 6, you have this statement that, that the wickedness of man is pervasive, it's immense, and it's total. One of the things I was thinking about as I was contemplating this text here is that we cannot ever lose our sense of shock at the sinfulness of man. We can't lose that. 
It's easy to lose that, though, isn't it? It's, it's easy to lose that sense of outrage at how sin defames the honor of God and his original intention with this world. We cannot let the world lull us to sleep thinking that adultery is normal or homosexuality is normal or lying is normal or drunkenness is normal or covetousness is normal. It is not. This is not who we were originally. We must pray the Lord keep us in a place, as Jesus says, of those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, mourn after what? Mourn after your own sin and the sin of the world around you. It's important to stay there because that's where God is every day. So this text tells us that the wickedness of man is a shocking thing. The Lord looks on it and it's it's horrific to him. The wickedness of man is not only shocking, but it's immense. It says that it's great wickedness. Wickedness is, wickedness is defined as that which just is bad or evil or morally wrong in God's sight. And this moral evil was great. Again, it wasn't just here and there. God looks down and he sees that it is everywhere, piling up at alarming rates. Great wickedness. This is how God views the world. What does, he look, what does he look at? He's looking at the world through a moral lens. Right? Through a lens of how the world relates to him. Right? He's not looking at the world in terms of you having a nice house or having a nice car, a nice put together uh, family per se. He's looking at the world in terms of a moral lens. Because see, you can have all those things and be destined for hell if you don't know him, if you don't love him, if you don't want him. And of course, the, the big ticket items, the violence, the, the, the drugs, the, 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 the theft, all of these things, and these, these things are expressions, but, but it goes deeper than that. The wickedness of man is great, and it's, it's everywhere at this time in Noah's day. I'm going to argue it's in our day as well. But wickedness was great in this day, and God looks at it, and is, he's horrified. And God sees that the, the wickedness is great and he sees that it's, that it's actually not just something that is sort of circumstantial or something that, that man does because of outward influences per se. It actually begins in the heart. He says that it's inward, the wickedness of man. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart. Every intention. Not just half the intentions of the thoughts of his heart. Not just 75% of the intentions, you know, oh, they mean well. This is every single intention to do this, that, or the other thing. Of the thoughts of his heart, not just the actions, but every intention of the thoughts of his heart. Every single one. Man's heart, totally wicked, polluted from within. It's akin to Paul's statement in Romans that the mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not able to. There is an inability now within the human being to subject itself to the Lord. It is not able to. 
And it's always important to remember that that, not, that inability is a culpable thing. That, as I've said probably a hundred times, that, that can't is tied to a won't. Right? That inability to subject itself to the law of God is tied to a desire to not want to. God isn't keeping people who would otherwise want to be good evil. These people don't want God. That's what's clear. And it's clear that they know about God. Through and through. Romans 1, I challenge you to go back and study it and look at how many times Paul says, although they knew God. People say, well, it's not fair. You know, people, people are well-meaning. They're sincere. They just, don't, yeah, they just don't have enough revelation. Paul says that's actually not true at all. They've got gracious plenty. And yet they still suppress that truth every day, all day. And it's constant. Every intention of the thoughts of their heart is continually wicked, constantly. Is this the way you look at the world? Never a break in the wicked thoughts of the hearts of men and women. Always evil, every day. Always self-focused rather than God-focused. Always motivated by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Constant. Even the good works that an individual does, they do it for self-recognition. Right? They do it to puff themselves up, to make them look better than others. It, it, it goes so deep, our selfishness, our self-absorption. But here it says that every intention and thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. And as the Lord looks down on this, he, it's just, it's, it's, he just, it's not that he just can't believe it, but there's something that we're supposed to learn from this. That he is grieved at his heart. Sorry that he makes man. It's as if the Lord can catch no break of relief as he scans the wickedness of human beings. So the question is, are we in our day like Noah's day? Can you take that verse and apply it to our context in our day? Or were they just especially bad? You know? Are we as evil as those who grieve the Lord in his day? Or have we morally improved over time? You know what's interesting is that when Jesus refers to Noah's day in Matthew chapter 25, he doesn't primarily speak about the wickedness of man. Remember when he says that? He says that when the Son of Man comes back, it's going to be like the days of Noah. And what are the things that he says? Does he say because the violence is massive and the wickedness and the immorality is everywhere? Is that what he says? What does he say? You remember? He said the people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. That's what they were doing. Until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And you hear all these books written about, oh, it's like the days of Noah. Because of this wickedness and that wickedness and this antichrist and that antichrist and this and that and the other thing. When Jesus just says, it's going to be like the days of Noah... Business as usual. There's going to be ceremony. There's going to be birthday parties. There's going to be weddings. There's going to be eating and drinking. 
And there's also going to be ignorance. He says that they did not understand until the flood came. There's this willful ignorance as well. Remember, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Noah was there preaching in his day, preaching that people might turn to God and repent of their sin, but they didn't. I mean, when you go to 1 Peter 3, that word eight should be shocking. Eight people. Eight out of millions. Even out of the eight, you only have one. The reality is we are just like Noah's day. Our world is the same. All you have to do, turn on the evening news. And that's the truth. That's the truth. As we assess our world and how well it's doing or it isn't doing, we don't assess it by... by by the philosopher's standards of human flourishing. We don't think we do well when everyone's just got clean water to drink. That's great. But that's not fundamentally how we assess this world and how it's doing before God. We don't just assess it by mere human flourishing. We, just because a society is wealthy and have families and, and have some societal structure and backbone, it does not mean it's righteous. Wickedness must be measured by the Lord who tells us in Romans 1 that his wrath is provoked by people who do not thank him or honor him as God. That alone evokes the wrath of God. Do you believe that? Oh, that seems pretty harsh. Do you believe that? That's the truth. People sell out God and cheat on God every day. Or how about Romans 3 who says that no one is good apart from the Lord. From the murderer on death row to the nice grandma who's simply religious but an idolater at heart. The thoughts of the hearts of men and women are still only evil continually. Remember Jesus looks at the crowds and says to these parents that they are evil. Even though they give good gifts to their children. They're evil. How do you look at the world? It's important, isn't it? It's important you have God's perspective about the condition of our world. And also in 2 Peter, we find that Peter speaks of the patience of God that's operative now, awaiting the new heavens and new earth when this current world will be destroyed by fire. God is now putting up with this world till all his people come to him. Listen to 2 Peter 3, 3 and 9. Know this first of all, that in the last days, Peter says, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Right? They're like, what do you, how can you talk about some day of judgment? Some cataclysmic change in history where God will do away with this current earth and establish a new one. How can you say that? I mean, everything's been the same for thousands and thousands of years, or as people in our day would say, millions and millions of years. Peter says, for when they maintained this, it escapes their notice. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed. 
being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So God has patience in Noah's day. God has patience in our day. Why? Because it's the same wickedness he's having to forbear. Can we say that those outside of Christ, the thoughts of their hearts are only evil continually? Yeah. Let this motivate your prayer life. (laughs) Let this filter the way you see the world. As sin is made to look more and more normal, you will lose this perspective. And if you lose this perspective, you will lose the urgency of the gospel the meaning and the glory of the cross and your thankfulness and love of the Lord will grow cold. Again, that's why God gives us the scriptures. He gives us the scriptures to continue to give us his perspective on this world. This is not about adopting the power of negative thinking. This is about adopting God's perspective of the world. You could say it's the power of reality thinking the way things really are. Look at things as he does. And how does the text in Genesis tell us that God felt about these things? As I mentioned just briefly, I want to look at them a little deeper here. Listen to it again. The Lord was sorry. He was grieved at his heart. And then he, verb- he verbally says and is captured, I am sorry that I have made man. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. I regret that I have made man, God says. Now th- this, this is extremely important right here. This is very, very, very important that you grasp this. Whatever you think of the sin of man, One thing that is clear is that it is man's fault. And it provokes God. That's so simple. That's so simple. Whatever you think of the sin of man, one thing that is clear is that sin is man's fault. The language of I regret that I have made man is absolutely striking the sin of man brings the suffering of God in some sense and I don't care about debates about impassibility you got to come to terms with this passage God is not a piece of granite he's not a piece of marble in the sky God has personhood he has emotion in some sense and what we do affects him big time so much so that he not only says I regret that I've made man I'm going to blot them out God is provoked. He is not a principle. He is not a force. 
He is not a machine. He is personal. And we affect his heart. The text wants us to grasp this. God wants you to grasp this. Or else we can talk about anthropomorphisms and blah, 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 blah. What, I'm trying, what the text is trying to communicate to you is the way God genuinely feels about human beings in sin. We get caught up in these theological discussions and we lose the fact that God is indeed grieved. When God looks down at this world, He is not smiling. If He could cry, He'd be crying. You believe that? That's why it's striking when His Son comes through the baptismal waters and the sky opens, He says, there's one I'm pleased with. And certainly he smiles on all his saints in that sense as they are united to his son. But still, God looks on this world and he says, I regret it. Now God doesn't have regret or repent like a human being does. We find that in 2 Samuel. I'm very aware of those texts. So it's not as if God did wrong. But at the same time, he is grieved. Man's sinfulness does not move God. Or it does, I'm sorry, it does move God to destroy the very beings he creates. And just as man or God is not a machine, human beings are not a machine. Human beings are culpable beings. Man is God's creation, yet the choices he or she makes are completely theirs to make, having to reap the consequences of those decisions. And it is clear that in Noah's day, these decisions brought the intense emotional pain and anger to the Lord. That's what the text says. The Bible presents the wickedness of man as something that man alone is responsible for. What does our society believe? about that. Our society believes that sin and bad choices should be blamed on our circumstances or opportunities or, or even disease or disorder or fatherlessness or maybe even the most holy of excuses, Satan. You know, it's interesting that nowhere in Genesis chapter 6 is it said that God is mad at Satan or the demonic hordes. Were they active there? Absolutely. They're not in view. Human beings are. You know why? Because ultimately you will bear the blame for your own sin regardless if Satan brings the heat or not. This is just so important. And it's not to say that circumstances don't make decisions easier or harder. But it's clear here that God puts the blame squarely upon man's own personal wickedness. And this wickedness comes from the heart. So as you look at the way the world is, don't lose sight of the fact that it's wicked because we are wicked. (laughs) We're the problem, aren't we? 
outside of Jesus. The wickedness comes from the billions of hearts of men, women, boys, and girls whose thoughts are only evil continually and not the Lord. Is the world cursed by God? Yes. But, and is death the decree of God over human beings? Yes. But this decree of death was a response. It was a response. It was a response to moral evil. God is paying humanity the wages of death for sin. It's easy at times to get drug into the confusion on the nature of sin. How could it begin in Adam and Eve's heart at all? Right? These things are hard to sort out. Didn't God know it all happened after all? If we believe God knows all things and decrees all things, how could God be genuinely mad at the situation he knew would transpire? All of these questions can be asked. Some of them have some answers. But the truth of the matter is that man is evil and God is good. You can sort of boil it down to that. Man is evil and God is good. It's not a cop-out. It's just reality. This world is in the state that it is in because of man's sin. And I cannot highlight this enough. Trust the scripture's representation of this dynamic. Not systematics, not philosophy. Just trust what the scriptures say. And you'll stay safe. The secret things belong to the Lord. There are secret things. Deuteronomy tells us, right? There are secret things that the Lord does not want us to know. That's why they're secret, right? There are secret things. You can take some solace in that, knowing that I can't put it all together. But what you can do is trust what's revealed. The things revealed belong to us and to our children. Trust the scriptures, how they portray portray these things, and you will have the Lord's heart. And obviously, this dynamic of, of, of sin and the way it provokes God, this is vital for our understanding the gospel. Man's total depravity and wickedness deserves a just punishment. Sin makes a man or a woman guilty before God, and this sin begins in the heart. And the gospel is good news because in the gospel, the legal righteousness and inward cleansing we need is given freely. That's the good news of the gospel. And it's good because if you don't receive it and you're not cleansed inwardly, you experience God's wrath just like those did in Noah's day. Except the wrath we will experience will not just be temporal, physical death, but it will be eternal death away from the presence of the glory of the Lord. But at the cross of the Lord Jesus, the, the wrath of God was poured out in fuller measure than was at the worldwide flood. You don't think of that because you're thinking this one little cross, this one man, and he's right there, and it's three hours. But there was more wrath poured out right there than there was in a worldwide flood. 
At the cross, Jesus takes the eternal punishment you and I deserved in his own body on the tree. He experiences the true flood of God's fury because he was there being treated as a sinner so that all those who believe in him would be treated as sons and daughters of God through faith. And again, one cannot truly understand the good news of the cross unless they understand the wickedness of man or the way man's sin affects the Lord. But praise the Lord, he loves the world to the degree that he gives what we so desperately need to be made right with him. If you think his sin is a fiction, then what in the world is Jesus doing here? If you think sin is a fiction, what in the world was the cross all about? Why put himself through it? Unless he had to. For God to, absolute, to, for God to actually justify and forgive anyone. If you don't know God this morning, God has another ark. And that ark is Jesus. Go run and get inside. Because one day that door will shut. Right now the text says that God is being patient. The patience of God. Patience is just that ability to tolerate or accept delay. And during the days of Noah, when the wickedness of millions of people was transpiring and Noah was busy building this massive boat, what does it say, God? How, what was he? What was he? What was he thinking? What was he feeling well he was feeling attention he was tolerating delaying his own wrath while that ark was being built i think it was over 100 years is that right something like that the text says that during the days of the construction of the ark god was patient and so you see god seeing this boat and it's time there's time going by day after day day after day god is sitting there being patient and during that time we find in Hebrews that Noah was preaching. Noah preaching, come, come to God, repent of your sin. Trust him, trust him, trust him. And God is patient and more of the ark is built and more of the ark is built more of the ark is built. Until that day the first raindrops started to fall. And the door shut. And you know Noah didn't shut the door. You guys caught that right and back in the text. God shut the door. And no one's going to open that again. The patience of God is a glorious thing. But it won't last forever in this world. Just know that. Make sure you're in the ark. One day his patience will run out. And the text says that when the patience of God was waiting in the days of Noah, waiting during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. He says, in which a few, in which a few, 
you know, you go back into Genesis 6, and it says in Genesis 6, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So there's these statements about the wickedness of man everywhere, and it's pervasive, and it was great, and it was, it was, it was, it was just all-consuming in the world. And then the text just says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It doesn't talk about anything that Noah did yet. It just says that Noah was singled out. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And it's interesting, isn't it? You do have Genesis 7, I believe, where it says God looks down and Noah's the only righteous one around doing things unto the Lord. But you don't have that statement about Noah's righteousness before his favor. And that's because grace always precedes righteousness. Noah was who he was by the grace of God. Not by works, not by being good enough, but God, his sovereign free grace. Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah wasn't better than those that were drowned in the, in the ocean of God's judgment. What separated him was God's favor. But it says here that it's a few. A few, that is eight persons were brought safe, safely through the ark. Eight Eight people. That is a few. That is a few. That's sobering, isn't it? Men, women, boys and girls, babies, all of them. Under God's judgment. Eight. What about in our day? Does Jesus have anything to say about that? Jesus says, broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through that. But narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. You know, it's a glorious reality that the Revelation paints a picture for us of a sea of people no one can count, or a, a, yeah, a sea of, of people no one can count worshiping at the throne. Right? That's a glorious. That's a glorious truth. And yet Jesus says, "There's few." Well, how does this work? Well, what we can say is that in every generation, true Christians are the minority and always will be. True Christians are the minority and they always will be. Be sober to this. Be humbled if you are one of the few. (laughs) It is few. Now it's a few, a minority that's thousands of years in, in running, So that's why you're going to end up with a sea of people no one can number, but it's still few. Have a sober realization of what the reality is in this life, of what it'll be. You know, theologies that teach that it will be the majority aren't reading their Bibles. Theologies that teach that you can go about Christianizing nations aren't reading their Bibles. There's no way you can read these words and go away thinking that you're going to Christianize the world. Few. Just let it sink in. Few. And be humbled. Be absolutely humbled that you were chosen for mercy. Few. Eight people. How grateful do you think those eight were on the ark? What do you think they were thinking? 
What sounds were they thinking? Were they hearing? What, what, what was going on in their minds? What will go on in your mind when you see the wicked consigned to the lake of fire? Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. That's what you're going to think. Eight people. And the interesting thing is about this is that Noah's the only one who finds this favor in the text. It didn't say that his family found the favor per se. It just said Noah. God looks down and bestows grace on one man. And this, the other seven family members end up getting into the ark because they're connected with Noah. And of course, this is a picture, isn't it? This is a picture. There's only one man in history of men who is truly pleasing to the Lord. Only one man, when if united with him, will bring you safely through the day of judgment. There's only one. Only one. And that's the one greater than Noah. Jesus, the Son of God. He's the one who will bring you safely through. Do you know Jesus? No, he's everything. And he's done everything that it takes for you to arrive safely, as the old hymn writer says, on those golden shores. Thank God for Jesus. If you don't know Christ this morning, what he says is, come to me. That's what he says, come to me. By faith, trust me, believe on me, and you will be saved. That's what he says. Don't make it complicated. If you want Jesus Christ, you can have Jesus Christ, but you have to call on Jesus Christ. Looking away from yourself, turning away from your sin, recognizing your sin is wicked and awful in God's sight. It needs forgiveness, but knowing that Jesus is a sufficient Savior, you call on Jesus Christ, and then you get placed into that ark, and you will be safe. Find a refuge in Him. So why don't we stop there and ask the Lord to just help us to think about how glorious this reality is that Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. Father, thank you so much for what you've done for us in Christ. This picture that we have of the flood, Lord, it's sobering. Lord, this certainly goes contrary to many messages I'm sure that are going out this morning of peace, peace, when there is no peace. But Lord, for those of us in Jesus, Lord, there is peace, real peace. There's peace for us who are justified in your sight through the blood of your Son and faith in him. And we just praise you that now being justified, we have peace with you. Lord, a peace that one time did not exist between us. But we thank you, Father, for what you have done. We thank you for, oh Lord, just, um, we thank you for the reality that you know we don't fully grasp how glorious it is, and yet you still call us your own. Lord, we want to, we want to understand how great and glorious this great salvation is. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd enlighten our hearts more to these things, but... 
But Lord, you love us. You are invested in us and, and you are bringing us safely to you, to you even now. Lord, in Peter's day, these people are facing all manner of persecution. They're, they're facing this reality that, the, that they are the minority, surely, in Asia. And as time will go on, many of these believers and their children and grandchildren will face horrendous persecution. By the second and third century, it will be empire-wide. And Lord, certainly this word continues to come to us in this age as well. Lord, we have to remember that, that the true believers are few. And that is because the narrow way is hard and it's exclusive. And yet it's the way that leads to life. And Lord, you're the one who's placed us there. Help us to remember that. The world can seem at times like they have things together, like they're making progress, like, like they're doing better and better. But Lord, it's just not the case. It's not true. They may have more of this and more of that, but they don't have you. So Lord, help us to look at the world as you do through a moral lens and through a lens that, that considers whether or not they are related to you rightly. As we think about our, our family members, as our coworkers and others, Lord, help us to just understand that the greatest dilemma is separation from you. Lord, that we might continue to have an urgency for the gospel and so that we might remain thankful and just always glorying in your work on the cross that reconciles men back to you. And we ask all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.